As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, January 11th, 2021. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. We'll talk about Kyle Schwarber. He found a new home since we last spoke. He has headed to the Nationals. Uh, two international free agents opted to stay put or at least failed to find suitable deals with MLB teams. Robbie Grossman went to Detroit. We didn't really talk about that when it happened. We'll also get to the fantasy fallout of the Francisco Lindor trade. And a fun new addition over at Baseball Savant. You know, how's it going for you on this Monday? It's good. It's good. I had a normal weekend, which is to say about the same as any other. <laughs> but we got some <laughs> stuff done uh, downstairs here in my office, which, oh, man, over break. I did some filing and I'm so bad at filing. I'm also trying to like clean up my my grips and, 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 and file those a little better, my grips picks. But... I'm so bad at filing that I had a, a pile uh, that had stuff in it to file that was 10 years old. <laughs> and that means that I've moved that pile without filing it three times. Like actual One. location moves. How many different? Yes. I've moved houses three times in the last 10 years. So that pile just stayed a pile. <laughs> <laughs> I moved it. The, the The upside of all this procrastination is great, though. Uh, half of it went right into the shredder because, you know, you don't really have to keep stuff that old. Like a 10-year-old bank statement is not very useful. <laughs> no. <laughs> My wife was just laughing at me. I think I actually filed out of, that, out of this big pile that I've been looking at and being like, oh, God, that pile is looking at me. And <laughs> out of that, I only actually filed like eight things. <laughs> So I feel better better about the office right now. Yeah, that's a, it's a productive weekend. I actually got a, a print a long time ago as a gift. It's of old baseball cards from the Burdick collection, which were on display at the Met years ago. And it needed to be reframed. And it took me more than a year to get it reframed because <laughs> lazy. No, actually, I didn't have room for it in my apartment. So it was at my in-law's house. We were cleaning there a couple weekends ago. I said, hey, actually, I really like this, and I have this nice office space now. I should reframe it. So that finally happened. So uh, it was a good weekend to catch up on some things that we 
procrastinated on for uh, a bit too long. The office is finally coming together, only uh, almost two years into working from home. So I can relate to your your 10-year pile. I didn't get to 10 years, so I didn't get to the same level, but same sort of problem. Uh, but let's start talking about some of these topics because Kyle Schwarber has a new home, and that's pretty exciting to me. I thought there was a chance that maybe he'd sign somewhere and play first base, but that's not going to happen in D.C., this is a team that really doesn't care about defense, as we've talked about a few times, but Kyle Schwarber's not there to play defense. He's there to bolster the Nats' offense, and he's coming off of a pretty disappointing shortened 2020 season. But I believe in this bat. You know, I, I think he's one of those players I can look at very easily, talk myself into 2020 being a short season fluke for the most part. Uh, I want to get in on that long-term track record. I see a guy that can hit for a decent average, get on base at a better-than-average clip, and give above-average power to us as fantasy players. Uh, I think being in the heart of this Nats lineup is just as good, if not better, than some of the lineups he's been in with the Cubs in recent years. And I think the park is actually an upgrade for him as well. So you want to throw some cold water on me here? Like, Am I, am I too excited about Kyle Schwarber ending up with the Nats, or is it, uh, is it justified excitement? No, I you know I saw some comps to Adam Dunn out there, and I think, you know, I think he's a, a modern Adam Dunn to to some extent. Um, I'm I I have no problems, but you know, the one thing is like from a, a real life standpoint, um, it seems like the Nationals are really leaning into the defense doesn't matter idea, <laughs> um, because Schwarber was a bottom five outfielder by outs above average and the nationals were the worst defensive team in baseball by any stat last year and you know soto's okay and robles can be okay but schwarber's not going to help them that much in the outfield and then we've uh, we've got the whole non trey turner infield plus josh bell who's no good at defense so it's kind of one of those play, thing, play teams where they're like we have good defenders at shortstop and center <laughs> that's it that's all we need to do we covered it we got it um but unfortunately balls go to the places but yeah i mean in terms of the stat cast numbers on schwarber he took a slight dip in barrel rate but you kind of want to regress skills even if they are skills so i would say after demonstrating a sort of uh, league leading type barrel rate for the last three years going into last year and then showing a fairly decent one last year even um, I would say that you know his the the over under on his bail rate next year is around thirteen percent, uh, which would put him in the top sort of ten percent of the league. So he, I think he's right there. He still hit the ball really hard. You know, lost a little bit of loft, but you know he's also facing the same pitchers over and over again. So maybe you know that's a, maybe there's a quirk there of just seeing the same pitchers over and over again, um, and not uh, not having time to uh, sort of diversify his portfolio and whoop up on some other pitchers. Um, <laughs> you know, the quality of his opposition probably goes up a little bit, but the park favors him a little bit. So I think across the board, a little bit of wash, a little bit of under undervalued player. If people are looking at that 188 average and thinking he's done. Yeah. I mean, I think he's projected at 242 by steamer that seems like a very reasonable place to put the expectation schwarber hit 250 in 2019 hit 238 in 2018 thinking about the long-term barrel rates that you mentioned 
that's why I think he's reasonably stable in that category despite the 188 that we saw in 2020. When you hit the ball as hard as Schwarber does, as often as he does, good things tend to happen even if you're not a good runner, even if you do hit the ball in the air you know, a little bit too much, even if you do have some pull tendencies. Um, so I, I don't know if we'll ever get all the way back to 2019. That was the career-high 38 homers that season. But he can get back to 30 again for me, and the run production should be there. So where he's going in drafts, looking at his ADP since January 1st, I think he's still very undervalued. 204 overall, the earliest he's gone is 164. Maybe he'll jump up a couple of rounds now that he has a team. That's not uh, unheard of for guys that are, are free agents. But if you said Kyle Schwarber settles in around pick 160, once we get to March or April, whenever the end of draft season ends up being, that's actually right near his new teammate, Josh Bell. I mean, I think they're fairly comparable in terms of my power expectations. Maybe Bell has a little more floor in the batting average department, but I like them both where they're going right now. So I guess you could say I'm buying into uh, what Mike Rizzo and the Nats are doing here. Uh, would you go as high as like Jorge Soler? I mean, I think Soler's kind of got a similar power profile. He's going around pick 150 overall. Is that a, a reasonable 2021 would you rather toss up if you're looking for some mid-round power? Yeah, I think so. And uh, you know, they both have uh, power. And they both have power and they both have, I would say, you know, risk when it comes to the batting average. Um, I thought that Jorge Soler would never have uh, even the 265 batting average that he had in 2019. So I, I kind of think that they're almost exactly the same kind of player, <laughs> like mm-hmm. very similar. But I kind of um, have a little bit more confidence in Schwarber's natural contact ability, even if uh, that hasn't really been shown necessarily in the numbers because – I see Schwarber making huge – maybe I'm just biased towards him because I, I see him making huge adjustments from year to year um, and having like sort of two or three different swings and kind of um, – I could see him still having one more sort of peak type year in him, whereas I think Solaire's peak year is behind him. Also, you know, his play discipline is better. So, I think I, I prefer him actually a little bit. I don't know. I know that the projections prefer uh, Solaire, I think. I can't find him in here. Is he not outfield eligible? He might not be. I got his player page up. He's 246, 341, 486 with 33 homers over 616 plate appearances, according to Steamer, which is, yeah, it's almost identical to Schwarber. I think I would, if they were both on the table, I'd be fine leaving them on the table until one was gone and then, you know, hopefully get the other one the next round. Yeah, so there here has a $12 projection. Um, and I think Schwarber had an $8 projection by Steamer. So supposedly they're different, but I see them as just being really, really similar. There's a pretty funky group of hitters. Not funky in a retro, cool sort of way, but funky in a, these guys used to be either really good, or these guys are old breakout guys, or these guys are prospects who are just breaking into the league all sort of clustered together and it's it's disorienting because you look at it and you're like do I want to buy into track record and go get a bounce back do I want to buy into the possible breakout in the case of someone like a Dylan Carlson or 
I would say I'm Wander Franco's in this this range for me. I'm I'm talking about hitters that are sort of in like the 60 to 100 range among hitters. And you can't you could kind of group guys together, but you could also put almost identical players 40 players apart and justify it somewhat easily based on the makeup of their last year and a half of performance. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that um you know, there's also something here about uh, managing your team well early on. Um, if you have a good batting average, this is, I think, mostly uh, important in smaller te- in leagues, but it's important in all leagues, is if you keep your batting average high in the early parts, you allow yourself more um, interesting endgame pickups. Because if you're in the endgame trying, cho- trying to you know, find batting average... Uh, along with something else, then you're going to be in trouble. But if you have a strong batting average um, near near the end game, here are some power guys that have uh, the worst batting average component to it that might be available to you because other people are still chasing batting average. So Randall Grichik, uh, Joey Gallo. Um, let's see here. These are all minus $3 guys on batting average. Teoscar Hernandez, Kyle Schwarber, Ian Happ. Uh, Justin Upton, Hunter Renfro, uh, Will Myers. So, you know, these are all guys that are, that are, that, uh, that have positive value in homers, um, that will be available to you if you have a good batting average later on. So that's something I think of when I look at those guys. Stepping back for a second, then if you're getting that batting average foundation early, are you sidestepping guys that hit in the 260, even 270 range with your first couple of picks. I mean, if you look back from 2019 forward, uh, Jose Ramirez has a 267 average since the start of 2019. A great player, power and speed, so maybe he's an exception, but Bryce Harper at 262, right? I mean, he's clearly going to get you power. He's going to have run production, but that does ding you pretty good in that category. If you have a couple 260, 270 type hitters right off the top, and you you can't find a lot of high quality batting average later. If you're getting batting average late, a lot of times it's coming from guys that are completely empty for power. You're talking about a, a Luis Arias or uh, a little earlier than that, a David Fletcher. Those types of players are, are certainly useful, but if they bring five home runs over a 162 game season, that is problematic. So do you stay away from some of the lower average early rounders kind of thinking ahead to what the middle and late rounds tend to look like? Yeah, somebody asked me about Bryce Harper versus um, Kyle Tucker recently. And um, it was, I believe, fairly close when it comes here by Steamer uh, in the Fangraphs auction calculator. Uh, They're separated by uh, Kyle Tucker's $18 and Harper, I think, is $19. Uh, $20. So, you know, if you're a strict projection numbers, these are the numbers, this is the valuation, then you would take Harper. Um, and that was the hardest. Th- th- this person asked me like three would you rathers basically. And this was the hardest one for me because, um, you know, I think Tucker could steal more bases. Maybe he's younger. He should. He the, should steal the, more bases. The, the kind of the uh, upside downside favors. He, I think. He, you know, he has more upside possibly given his age, like in just in terms of if you miss on him, it might be below what he does. Um, and then there's this batting average component where if Bryce Harper is your first batter, like if you went, 
you know, sort of like pitcher, pitcher, Harper, uh, then you're you're already uh, behind in batting average. But if you also got um, someone that didn't necessarily uh, figure to be a huge plus on, so if, if you paired Jose Ramirez with Bryce Harper, you may not in your head think that you have a batting average problem, but you probably are behind where your team league mates are in batting average at that moment. It might work out fine if you're not going after the low average big power guys later. If you feel like the the next few rounds, as you're putting more hitters around those two guys, you're getting ample power with each of those picks. You know, being in the two sixties at season's end in a lot of formats is going to be okay. It just gives you a lot less roster construction flexibility yeah, exactly. later exactly. if you start off that way. But if you're getting a lot of speed up top, I, I think Harper is a little more problematic, but if, <laughs> if you look at OBP, he did almost have a 100-point gap on Tucker yeah. in the short season. Tucker was at 325, and Harper was up at 420. In OBP leagues, a lot of this changes for sure. But even when you think about counting stats and, and just general run production and where they are going to be in their respective lineups, I mean, Tucker with the losses in Houston should be pretty firmly in a prominent spot. Harper, you're not worried about that at all. Uh that's where that separation is for those two players for me, even though I'm with you. I think Tucker probably steals 10 more bases over a full season than Harper. But Harper runs a little bit, more than a little bit even. But if it's a batting average league and you've got this, um, you know, not as bad of a minus on batting average and more of a plus in stolen bases, it's an interesting thing to think about how Tucker might set you up for better picks later. You know, maybe that's worth a dollar. At, at some point, you know, it's not quite something that's baked into the projections. So these are things that I think that uh, the season, the best play, fantasy players, I don't think that they um, I mean, there's there's a few out there that'll tell you it's the number, it's the number and it's only the number. And that's all I care about. But I, I think that um, the way the numbers fit together is important. The elite of the elite players completely understand the importance of how the pieces fit together like that's what separates them that's a big part of what separates them anyways knowing that there's a, a chain series of chain reactions that will take place if they go with plan a versus plan b versus plan c early i think that's truly what makes a great player and you have to have some different ways to get in and out of the various problems that are created by the foundation that you build which again is why draft champions leagues or best balls or mocks, whatever it is you like to do to get ready. That's why those are so Practice important to go huge. through that process. Practice so important. Big, yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. 
Uh, some other transaction-related matters to get to that are pretty interesting. Sungbum Na and Tomoyuki Sagano failed to reach a deal with an MLB team before their respective windows closed. Both of those guys are 31 already. They could certainly make another run at it next offseason. Uh, but it's just kind of sad, really, that they couldn't find a deal, especially Sugano as a pitcher in a market that doesn't have a lot of high-quality pitching in it. That one surprised me the most of those two, but I really thought we were going to see both Sugano and Na coming here stateside in 2021. I mean, he got a pretty good deal, and I bet you from the Giants in Yomiuri <laughs> as opposed to the Giants in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think that it ended up actually being about money, you know, uh, because he got a, I think like a four for 40 uh, deal over there. Um, and it has an opt out after every season. So he can, you know, kind of sniff around and see if he can do better in America uh, just by opting out. Um, and then he doesn't have to go through the posting system and he can kind of just be a free agent, you know? Um, and so four for 40, I had a projected for something like for 550, 560, because the team has to bake in the fact that they don't know exactly what he will do with an MLB that, you know, that there's that uncertainty. Uh, plus they have to send extra money on top of what they spend, uh, back to Japan. So there's that sort of extra five to 10 million they have to throw on at, uh, the contract at the end. Um, that, that's that's real money that puts more uh, emphasis on him being uh, at the top end of his projections or whatever. I saw him as being slightly better than Tanaka. You'd think that, you know, with Tanaka being out there, that there would be interested in somebody slightly better than Tanaka. That would mean he's probably the second best pit starting pitcher on the market right now. Thought that would be more than enough for a team to find a way to make it work. Yeah, I think maybe we have a little bit of a COVID situation there. Um, you know. If he just feels like I have to also th- he mentioned that maybe the the deals would have gotten better if he had more time, but he was forced by the posting structure to only negotiate within these seven days or whatever, you know, or 10 days or whatever the amount of time was. So he can't wait for Bauer to sign and then to go to the team that missed out on Bauer and say, hey, you can get me. I'm the best pitcher on the market now. You know, so. um yeah, I don't think it's great. Uh, hopefully, we get to see him over here sometime, um, and uh, hope you know he probably made the best decision for himself. Yeah, it certainly seems that way, given what we've had happening over the course of this off season. Uh, Robbie Grossman signed before our last episode that we did with Britt didn't quite make the cut with the Lindor trade happening while we were recording, of course. So. Uh, I'm just kind of curious with Robbie Grossman. I mean, the OBP skills are legit. He's had those really ever since 2016 in Minnesota. He's always been this kind of productive fourth outfielder, uh, playing a lot against lefties, occasionally against righties. Where did the power come from last year? I mean, we've seen the A's uh, do this with Mark Canha as well. Most people are pretty skeptical that Grossman's going to come out and hit 20 home runs over a full season. I think that's fair skepticism to have at this point. He was 8-for-9 as a base stealer uh, as well in in the shortened season. It's a two-year deal, $10 million. Not a big deal for a rebuilding team like Detroit. Uh, Plenty of available plate appearances there. And bad news for some of the younger guys like Kristen Stewart and and Daz Cameron because having someone like Grossman there just makes it even less likely that both of those guys could have uh, 
a regular spot to call their own, at least to begin the season, but perhaps even throughout 2021. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but you know, these guys have had some chances already. Um, if you want to be honest about it, <laughs> I mean, uh, I've, I've had shares of Kristen Stewart for two or three years now because he hits the ball hard, but you know, he's a little bit like, um, Robbie Grossman. In fact, in the, the way that like maybe he only has one skill. Um, mm-hmm. Robbie Grossman's one skill used to be not swinging. He's top 10 and not swinging. Uh, since he got into the big leagues, <laughs> um, uh, an interesting skill. Uh, but uh, Stewart's barrel rate was okay at eleven percent last year. That that would that would play. Uh, the problem is that he made no contact, had no patience. Uh, is not a good defender. Is not a good base runner. Yeah. So I was I was waiting for something nice to, to happen. <laughs> no, I got Ed. nothing nice, man. Um, so I think I think you know he's twenty seven years old at this point too. Like twenty seven years old, and he's had five hundred and eighty seven. Uh, plate appearances. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think you need to make room for him. I was thinking, you know, the Tigers should be betting more on upside than than somebody like Grossman. But uh, Stewart, Demerit, um, Badu, Reyes, Daz, none of them are really good. No, I actually would have thought that David Dahl, instead of getting $3 million to go to Texas, yeah, I thought he would have been a good fit for mm-hmm. a team further that, away like Detroit. That would have made sense. Yeah, that would have made sense. I'm sure, I, I bet you they were, I bet you they talked to Dahl. They had $10 million for Grossman. They talked to Dahl. It's not my money, but I would have given Dahl two for 10, even though I know he's arbitration year to year. If that's what it would have taken to get him, like I would rather have given two to 10 to David Dahl than Robbie Grossman. And that would have given you a, a chance at more upside, younger player. Uh, more impact and more facets of the game. And that's all being said, despite the fact that um, Grossman's an okay signing. I mean, we, this is kind of the kind of the signings that we want more teams to do, right? Like this is the signing that, um, you know, gives these mid uh, mid table veterans, uh, gives them more of a lifeline. It, it, it shows that the Tigers are trying to put a better team on the field next year. Uh, so it checks some, some boxes. I also like, that you have this guy who's elite at not swinging who just put up the highest swing rates of his career. Uh, so you kind of have this idea that he's just become a little bit more aggressive. He's catching the ball out front more. And that led to his first above league average barrel rate of his career. So like some of this could just be a, a, a slight change in his approach um, leading to you know the, the numbers line up between his power numbers and his stat cast numbers. They look okay. So, you know, he may not hit 20 next year, but he could hit 15 to 18, steal you 10 bags, uh, more of a deep league player for fantasy purposes. But, you know, for the Tigers, a credible outfielder, which now gives them maybe one and a half credible outfielders. Yeah, he's outside the top 300 overall in terms of his January ADP. I don't think he's going to get any higher than 300, even with a pretty good path to playing time. He's actually going really close to Jacoby Jones, who was doing some interesting things before his shortened season He's the half. was cut. I'm being more short. Him. Jacoby Jones is is probably a league average outfielder while he can still play center. Seems like he might be disrespecting Victor Reyes. Then Victor Reyes is the Tiger with the highest ADP, at least among position players. No, that's among all players. <laughs> 173 overall in January, only a half dozen drafts. The only Tiger in the top 200 right now 
is Victor Reyes. So I imagine we're going to see some sort of just doesn't Grossman Jones Reyes outfield as as the default configuration. Yeah, but I I don't know. Reyes doesn't hit the ball hard. Looks to me like a Robles. Doesn't walk a lot. Yeah. Strikes out more than he should for a guy that doesn't walk a lot. You know, you kind of want a a 15% K rate if you're going to walk less than 5% of the time. 90 average exit velocity, career high in 2020. He hit the ball a little harder last year. One of the worst reach rates in baseball. 8 for 10 as a base stealer. That's where I think that. I mean, that's that's why fantasy owners care. is coming from. But, you know, he is in this group of mostly steel, almost no power, iffy batting average, iffy player group that I I just don't want to buy from anymore. Like, I kind of don't want them. Somebody put up a thing that said Oscar Mercado, Victor Reyes, and somebody else. Maybe it was Robles. And I was just like, and they they had their, you know, per uh, 550 plate appearance averages or projections or whatever. And I was like, which one of these three is going to make it to 550 plate appearances? If one of them gets there, it's most likely Robles. And, you know, there's some thought that Andrew Stevenson's going to play a little bit as the fourth outfielder, and it would come probably at Robles's expense if everybody's healthy. But that assumes that Robles is more the player we saw in 2020 and less the player we saw in 2019. For all the things that went right in 2019 for us as fantasy players with Robles, the 17 homers, the 28 steals, he was a below average offensive player that year. He had a 91 WRC+. He had the low average exit velocities. We talked about that. It wasn't just the bunting. Tons of blue ink. All the flaws have been discussed. But if he's a premium defender, he will stay in the lineup. He will get that playing time, and he will have more chances to continue developing as an offensive player. And you know, I think that's what still makes him interesting to me as I see his path to playing every day in center field. Like if if the two places they care about defense are shortstop and center field, then Victor Robles plays a lot for the Nats because he has to go out there and cover for Soto and Kyle Schwarber in the two corners. In this group that we've now created of Mercado, who was announced I don't know if it's announced, but it was sort of said that he will be the opening day starting center fielder, most likely. It's a weird statement to make for a guy that was so bad that he was at the alternate site last year when he should have been a starter all year last year. Like, he seems like the kind of guy that would need to earn that spot again. It seems even more likely Mercado will still have a spot in center next year. So that comes from Mandy Bell at MLB.com. Uh, take it for what you will, but I would say that um, I just wanted to bring out that between Mercado, Reyes, and Robles, despite the fact that uh, Robles has the lowest average EV, that is maybe the less least one of the le- least important stat cast stats, I think, and one of the most important is barrel rate, and Robles has had the best barrel rate out of the three hitters. Right, taking some pitches that you can drive and actually showing you can drive them. That's possible. That's that's encouraging. And I think the other thing that stands out to me is the hit tool. You're still talking about a guy in Victor Robles that had a 60-grade hit tool. An above-average hit tool with well above average speed, defense, and an arm. That is a good real-life player, even if he doesn't do what we all want him to do fantasy-wise. And I think saying that he won't reach our expectations fantasy-wise is still premature. Clearly had put on a ton of weight when the season started 
things were never right for him in 2020. I can't give him a complete pass because he's not free in drafts. I mean, compared to... Yeah, the ADPs are not the same. Are they? The the ADPs are really important. Well, Victor Reyes and Victor Robles are not that far apart. Victor Robles goes at 149. At least he has been in January. Victor Reyes has been going at 173, as I was saying before. But then Oscar Mercado is your traditional sort of buy low. ADP is 365. And if that good news about him having the center field job to start the year holds up, and we know Cleveland probably doesn't want to spend money at all, he's cheap, he's there, Delano DeShields isn't, you know, things are pointing in the right direction for Mercado to have a chance to get his job back. He was going 200-plus picks earlier in drafts just last year, and Cleveland didn't have their hitting coach, so you know maybe that was something that really did enable Mercado to fall even further than we expected. So he, where he's going... I would take a chance on Mercado, even knowing that there are flaws, because cheap speed's hard to find, and he comes with a little bit of pop to go with it. Uh, so I, I like him where he goes. You can't really compare the group all in all, but Victor Robles is better than Victor Reyes to me, and it's not even really a debate. Like I, I'm surprised that Victor Reyes goes within a couple of rounds of Victor Robles. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I, who's going around 170 just to give a better, like, who could you take instead of Reyes or Robles you could go all power low average Joey Gallo holy cow that's not going to stick right Gallo's going to start going a little earlier he has yeah. to uh, Randall Gritchick who you mentioned earlier uh, and Leody Tavares who if you said who is in danger of being this year's Oscar Mercado yeah Leody Tavares kind of has some of the same traits as Oscar Mercado like think about how baseball like what what baseball values in terms of playing time I think you're better off setting yourself up so that at the end game, when you're making these decisions between all power, no average, or all average, no power, you want to be picking with the rest, with the things that baseball values. You want to be picking all average, uh, no, all power, no average at the end game because there's going to be more of them and they're going to be more likely to hold their jobs, right? Like, what's the, what's the chance that Joey Gallo loses his job this year? Versus the chance that Victor Reyes loses his job this year. <laughs> yeah. Am I kidding? Big difference. Huge difference. Big, big difference. And I know that people value steals, but I guess I'm making an argument to some extent to sort of paying a little bit more for steals and, and batting average at the beginning. So you're not, you're not stuck needing Victor Robles or Victor Reyes. But I can tell you that's not a good place to be. And this isn't way out of left field. I mean, this is something we've kind of been talking about going back even to last draft season as the the concern and trying to figure out where to get steals from. And uh, I think it ties back into uh, replacement level or near replacement level players giving us unexpected production in fantasy and then having the bottom fall out in terms of playing time because they're not good real life players. Like Danny Santana was the main fairly obvious player <laughs> in that piece that you wrote. So if you look at a player and go, is that profile kind of like a Danny Santana profile? Well, yeah, then then it's a pretty risky profile. And that, to me, is where Victor Reyes kind of falls in. Like He's definitely not a guy I'm drafting in the 170 range at all. If he were going in the back of the 200s, like 275, sure. I'll take a shot on him there for some Yeah, like where Mercado is, like I'm okay. Now I'm interested in Mercado. Last year, I had like a share of Mercado, and I hated myself when I took it. And when the, the whole thing went down, I was like, you idiot. You knew it. You freaking knew it. Why did you? 
because I wanted steals. I had talked myself into like, I'm going to buy a bunch of guys who have 20 steals and that'll be good enough. And I thought I could put Mercado down for 20 steals, but I forgot about the stuff he's not that good at. And maybe he'll come back and be better this year and I'll be fine. But I do think that of the ceilings of those three, the ceiling is highest on Robles. And so if you're going to, if you are going to pay the 170 price on anybody, it should be Robles, not Reyes. Yeah, and it might even be a little earlier than that price on Robles, but that's still, that's not unreasonable when you look at the core skills. Yeah, but it's risky. probably better just to pass on that profile at 170 and pick it at 300 where it's baked in that that person may never play for your team. Man, I hate to say this, but I, I keep looking at Dalton Varsho because he's sitting right next to Victor Robles just inside the top mm. 150. And as much as I like Dalton Varsho... What are we doing here? I mean, I know some power and some speed from the catcher spot, especially when he might get surplus playing time playing in the outfield. Like, And he's a good hitter. It looks like he'll be a good hitter. He hasn't necessarily proven it but in the major leagues or anything. But, I mean, it was a, it was a debut. But you're right. You're right. What if, what if the defense is not good enough for center and not good enough for catcher and the bat is league average, is projected to be league average, then where what like what are you doing? You're gonna play him over David Peralta? The playing time downside is worse than I want it to be. Yeah. That's the problem with Dalton Varsho. And I I don't wanna be the skeptic about Dalton Varsho. I wanna be the optimist. Yeah. I wanna have Dalton Varsho on my team, just not where he's been going in these early drafts. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash. Or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant. Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, let's talk about some of the fallout from the Lindor trade because it was fresh. I mean, it literally broke while we were recording on Thursday. And I know I can say with confidence that I like the return Cleveland got more than Britt likes the return that Cleveland got in the deal. She did not like what they did at all. The thing that bothered me about the trade was just that Francisco Lindor is a franchise player and he should have stayed in Cleveland. Whether or not Cleveland did a good job getting a proper return is sort of a different question. And when you look at it, it's two middle infielders, you know, a pitching prospect. Um, it's not, and, and Isaiah Green's kind of a nice sleeper outfield prospect. It's not really a bad return. 
in the grand scheme of things. And I think it leads me to a question. I put this up on Twitter. I'm curious what you think of this. Have we seen Ahmed Rosario's best season as a big leaguer already? Have we already seen it? He's only 25 years old, and that best season was 2019. 15 homers, 19 steals, hit 287, 323 on base, had the K rate under 20%. Is a 2.7 war player. Above average defender at shortstop, league average hitter with a 100 WRC+. Plus. I mean, is that the best we're going to get? Because there were people that liked him a lot as a prospect. We saw a 65 future value put on him by Fangraphs back in 2017 was the year of that report. It seems pretty weird to me that his best season is already behind him. So they're not impossible, uh, but where do you fall on this in terms of, I guess, how bright is Ahmed Rosario's future at this point? Yeah, there was... What like what do you want to see in a skills progression? Do you like? I remember Starlin Castro like every year he improved his fly ball rate a little bit, you know, and he improved his strikeout rate a little bit. And I was like, oh yeah, Starlin Castro, he's going to you know strike out sixteen percent of the time this year and have the best fly ball rate of his career and still steal all those bases, and we're gonna get like a twenty five twenty five season from him with like two ninety average. I remember thinking that when I was looking at Starlin Castro. Let me see if I, how far off I was and what year I was. <laughs> I was uh, looking at him with the Cubs and his first three years. Look at this. His ISO was 108, 125, 147, right? And he stole 10 bases and then 22 and then 25. He's hit three homers, then 10 homers and 14 homers. It's like, oh, look, it's perfect. It's perfect. You know, his, his, his walk rate is getting a little bit better. His strikeout getting a little bit better. Everything's getting a little bit better. 2013. Here we come, Starlin Castro, 325-25, and he went 245 with 10 homers and 9 stolen bases and never stole 20 bases again and just settled in as like a 270-20 homer guy. My point is, you know, with Ahmed Rosario, you can tell yourself the same story. You see these little progressions where you're like, oh, you know, his ISO is getting better, his ground ball rate is, is getting better. Like, he went from 50.9% ground ball rate to 495 to 483 Woohoo! Like, you know, everything's getting a little bit better. There's a lot of uh, things to compare with Starlin Castro, actually. Not great walk rate. Um, the thing is, Starlin Castro actually barrels balls, and Amon Rosario does not barrel balls. He's a below average barreler. And then this year, he had a 57.8% ground ball rate. So, do you think that that, like, takes away from all that progression and t- tells you, no, the best he can ever be is that 287, 15, 19? Or is there something uh, just like a bad year where it's, you know he went the wrong direction and, and he's going to get back on his horse? I tend to think this is a little bit like Starlin Castro. He had the best year he was ever going to have. And he's going to settle in as like a 280-15-15 guy at most going forward. Okay, so I mean that's a, it's a pretty reasonable ceiling then. It's not, it's not exciting, but it, it plays. It's a regular for the next several years, but... Then you get to Andres Jimenez, where the future value was never expected to be nearly as high as Ahmed Rosario. And he fits, I think, as the starting second baseman. Again, saving money, clearly a priority for Cleveland. Um, I wasn't going anywhere near Jimenez in redraft leagues before this trade because I thought his playing time ceiling, even with the Cano suspension, was probably going to be that of a super utility player. But I do think now we're talking about a guy that plays pretty much every day. Eight for nine as a base dealer last year. 
three homers in 49 games. So maybe is he a 10, 25 guy over a full season? I'm very skeptical of that power. He's very young. Mm -hmm. He could easily add a little more because he could just get stronger. Where do you fall on Jimenez and, and how much more he might bring to the table offensively? Yeah, there was a, you know, he added a leg kick and there was a, Sort of a power outburst for him in terms of, you know, high A, he had a 149 ISO. Uh, and then double A, he had a 137 ISO. And those were markedly better than some of the other numbers he put up in between. So, but if you're listening, you know, those ISO numbers aren't that great. <laughs> so, his power explosion was still to have below league average power. And I think that's, uh, that that means that that's the best he's going to do going forward. In fact, I think now that I'm looking at him, he looks very much like Ahmed Rosario. <laughs> so I think they kind of got the same guy. Both of them barrel at sort of a three to four percent level, with, and league average is like four and a half to five. Uh, both of them don't have great walk rates. Both of them can make good contact, and both of them should be around league average real life players. Uh, and maybe even with the steals, real life. Um, I mean, fantasy players with, you know, somebody who can hit 10 to 15 homers and steal more than 15 bags is probably useful in most leagues. If those guys are both getting green lights, I mean, Rosario and Jimenez are better fantasy players than real life players, most likely. Uh, but I, I think with I think the other thing that I have to look at with Cleveland is nobody expected Jose Ramirez to be this kind of player and maybe one outlier really it's two because we've talked about this before Cleveland got more out of Francisco Lindor development wise as a hitter than I think anybody ever expected when you go back and read old scouting reports on Francisco Lindor which were effusive with praise people liked Francisco Lindor a lot as a prospect they didn't point to a 30-30 type player and Jose Ramirez when he came into the league was far from the kind of player that we see in front of us today, he had low barrel rates. I mean, he was a 3% barrel rate guy back in 2016. And that would have been, let's see, how old would he have been in 2016? About 22, 23 years old. So I don't think it's impossible for one or both of those guys to exceed our expectations. Like that's, it's at least in the range of outcomes still, even though what we've seen so far is underwhelming. I think one of the key differences for me is that Jose Ramirez controlled the strike zone better than either one of Rosario or Jimenez does right now. Even when he was brand new to the league in 2015, Ramirez was a low K percentage, good walk rate sort of player. Mm -hmm. Neither of the two players they acquired fit that description. So I think, you know, if you want to have pie in the sky expectations, they still shouldn't be as high as what we've seen from uh, the two middle infielders that Cleveland turned into stars in the last decade. I suppose... There could be something in there for Ahmed Rosario. I mean, his barrel rates have been better than what I would expect out of Jimenez. Um, you know, I, he had he had some success hitting the ball hard in the air in the past. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe they could unlock something out of Ahmed Rosario. Um, but I kind of think that they bought floor. They bought two you know league average middle infielders to uh that they won't pay that much uh for the next few years and they got some lottery tickets otherwise the the thing what i don't like about it is that they bought floor um and cut salary but if they don't spend the salary then floor is less interesting than ceiling you know what i mean mm -hmm. you're almost better off gambling and being wrong having the possibility of finding another four to five win sort of player yeah, yeah. instead of getting guys that are two win players I mean, I think that, you know, the Rays by floor, 
when you when you look at that Mejia uh, trade, the, they could have gotten better prospects. The, the Snell trade, they could have probably gotten better prospects, quote unquote, if they had gotten people who hadn't played the major leagues yet, who hadn't established some sort of baseline. Instead, they took Mejia and Patino because they were like, at least we probably have a good reliever and a backup catcher here, right? And there's a possibility for more. But the Rays are trying to compete every year in this in this like sort of way that they do. And I guess maybe the the Indians are trying to act like that. But do we have the like when we think about that Snell trade? I think we always add in like, oh, also James Paxson for ten million, right? <laughs> so it's like, right? It's would you rather have Snell or Mejia, Patino, and Paxton, right? That's the sort of mental math we're doing. But we don't know if we can make that mental math when it comes to the Indians. You know, it's not. No, would you rather no. have Lindor um, or Ahmed Rosario? Andres Jimenez, Lindor and Carrasco, or Andre or Ahmed Rosario, Andres Andres Jimenez, and James Paxton. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they they don't they don't give us the idea that they're going to do that. Whereas the, you know the Rays are always good for like one sort of short term deal in a given season. And for what's worth, I've heard they are considering um, you know spending a certain amount, sort of that Charlie Morton esque money, seven to ten million on a on a one year starter. Yeah, so it all lines up to at least fill that void. Whereas the Cleveland, we're not really getting any indication that they intend to spend money at all. Uh, but I think we deserve, we should say, we should give Cleveland more credit in some ways because they have had sustained success at multiple points in the last 25 years and they've done it without spending a lot, right? So if, if we praise teams like Oakland and Tampa Bay, we should praise Cleveland in a similar vein for their successes in player development and drafting and scouting and, and different things. Because look, since 1995, they've been to the playoffs 12 times. Like that's actually really yeah. good for the way they run the franchise. Yeah, and I got some pushback when I tweeted that you know uh, they get uh, you know close to 60 million dollars in national TV money, uh, even with the reduction from ESPN. Um, their local TV deal gives them $40 million. So, you know, they're making on TV alone about $100 million. And um, I think from what I've seen in estimates on things like streaming, um, naming rights, uh, and merchandise uh, is another sort of 20% on top of that. So we could, we could assume, I think, rightly that the Indians are uh, would bring in 120 million dollars or so before before fans are included in the in the math, um, and now their payroll is the lowest in big leagues at 40 million. Someone pushed back and said, "Well, they pay uh, you know Chris Antonetti is is among the best best paid GMs, um, and that the front office uh, has spent a lot on player development more than other places." But I, I have a knowledge of like the, the highest paid player development execs in the league, and that's on the order of sort of 300 to 500,000. So I can't imagine that even spending a lot on coaches and hitting coordinators and pitching coordinators and player development, um, and spending a lot on GMs is anything more than we're talking like sort of 10 to 15 million dollars. The last time Cleveland was in the top 10. For payroll was 2002, according to Cots. They've been uh, 15th or lower in every season since then. They've got plenty of 25s, 26s, 27s sprinkled in there as well. So 
you know, this is the way they run their team, and they're allowed to run the team that way. That's there. There's no rule preventing them from that. But um, I think where we all get frustrated and ticked off is that it, it's seemingly not for the the best long term interest of the game when there are only maybe ten teams that keep franchise players. Like that doesn't seem good for the players, but also doesn't seem good for the fans either. And somebody asked me also, like, what would you what would you do in their in their standpoint? Like they had to do this, quote unquote. Uh, they just went from having basically like a top five, top six type team by projections to being middle of the pack. Um, and they did that just to to cut uh, salary. It seems like I would have just kept Lindor at the risk of not getting anything more than a pick on the way out. I think that you could trade him at the trade deadline and get something. You wouldn't get this entire package that you just got, but you would get something um a value back at the trade deadline you know if you weren't going to be good this year um and uh that's i mean that's what i would have done i would have gotten the, somebody for him at the trade deadline i would have kept carrasco and i would i would have kept trying to be good um but uh, maybe there's a race for the the middle when it comes to the centrals um al and nl um and maybe they just feel like uh, they can do this and be in it for the wild card and um, continue to be good better in the future. But like, you know, for me, Tyler Freeman, I like Tyler Freeman. We've talked about Tyler Freeman in the past. Tyler Freeman had way better strikeout rates than Rosario and Jimenez in the minor leagues and better uh, power numbers than both of them, basically, um, and good speed and seems like he can play shortstop. So if you're going to bet on Rosario or Jimenez, you know, you could have bet on Tyler Freeman as a replacement. The guy that I thought they should have gotten the trade, maybe it was just impossible, it was never going to happen, is Dominic Smith. I mean, I think Dominic Smith in Cleveland makes so much sense. It's a part that also boosts up left-handed power a bit, too. Uh, it gives him a regular spot to play, lets him play his natural position instead of having to be a left fielder. It gives him a middle-of-the-order bat, right? Like that. Like now, mm-hmm. what's the middle of the order? Like, what's the, the beef of the order there? It's Jose Ramirez and Fran Mel Reyes, and everyone around him is flawed. Yeah, uh, a lot of lighter hitting speed first sort of players. Maybe a team that has to be active on the base pass just to generate offense could be a bigger part of who that team is going forward. Not that they were shy about running before. I mean, you have stars that run. Everybody can run if they're good at it. Uh, When you think about this team, obviously pitching is a strength too. Is there enough of a drop off in the infield defense without Lindor where you're lowering expectations for Cleveland's pitchers? Well, that is an excellent question that I'm not prepared for. <laughs> and so I will tippity-tappity real quick. I do I do want to look because without looking, I would say that there's a fairly big drop-off. But I do know that Lindor is getting older and that these guys are younger and that generally shortstop is manned by younger men. And so I do want to check and see what uh, Outs Above Average said on this. Uh, Lindor was the second best shortstop defensively last year. And we have Rosario is 13th best. Uh, still looks like a positive on par with Trevor Story and Trey Turner. And Andres Jimenez is 15th best. So, yeah, a little bit of a drop off. Um, but I think probably given that second base will get a little better. Probably that, you know, it's not it's not something I would dock to the Cleveland pitchers for. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how much better uh, Cesar Hernandez is actually good. He was four outs above average. So he was tied for second best among second basemen. But I, I don't think it's a 
they've suddenly got below average defenders. They have above average defenders up the middle. They're just maybe not quite as far above average as the guys they're replacing. The other side of this, you know, obviously Carlos Carrasco leaving opens up a spot in the rotation. Uh, long-term favorite of yours, that might be rounding up a little bit, but Cal Quantrill might have a spot to call his own in the Cleveland rotation. So he kind of strikes me as one of the biggest winners overall in the trade when you start shifting everybody around and, and assigning people new opportunities. Yeah, I'm surprised the uh, fan give Logan lighter command and uh, seemed in with uh, some of the stuff the Indians have done in the past, but he also has struck out fewer than six per nine uh, in the major leagues. Uh, which seems to mean uh, muted upside at best. I would go with Quantrill myself. I think anytime Cleveland opens up a spot in the rotation, we have to pay attention. That's pretty obvious based on what they've done over the last few years, turning you know Bieber into a first round pitcher. I mean, that was something that nobody would have expected when he came up. Plesak and Savali having a lot of success last year. Tristan McKenzie, I thought, looked pretty good. Um, Quantrill versus Allen for the fifth starter job. I mean, that can become a moot point. If anybody else gets hurt, they're both in the rotation together anyway. And I think with McKenzie, he's the guy that I worry about the most from an injury perspective with that lat injury that knocked him out for a prolonged stretch a couple of years ago in the minors. Obviously, the frame, mm. he's not that big. But I, I try to worry less about the frame than traditional scouts do. I mean, you look at him and you're like, yeah, that's like a C.J. Edwards sort of body or a Chris Sale sort of body. The long and whippy, I think you've called it before. Like that's certainly it's there, and it it worries you when you think about 170 or 180 innings going on. On his I'm not going to avoid him because of his frame, but I, when you put the frame together with the dropping velo, I mean, he went from like sort of 94 ish in his first start to 90.6 in his last start. Like that's it's huge. That's Big not drop. even like you know there is a there is what I call a, a debut bump. Where you, you know, in your debut, you throw about a half mile per hour faster than you sit the rest of your career, usually, or the rest of that year, um, because you're all adrenaline up and it's the first time in the big leagues. But that's, that's the one of the more aggressive debut bumps I've ever seen in my life. So, uh, that, that worries me a little bit. Uh, I think he's a lot more interesting at 93, 94 than he is at 90, 91. Um, so I'll, I, I think, I'm not saying I'm out of McKenzie. I just, I just want to know in spring, you know, what he's throwing. I'm, I'll be definitely be um, asking around on that. Yeah, and it's not cheap. He's going in the back of the top 200. ADP's 188 in January. Yeah, and, you know, as for, you know, something like, um, you know, why uh, why Quantrill over, um, over another reason why Quantrill over Alan Quantrill, I've got as a 101 stuff and 102 command. Um, those are so both above average. And uh, Alan, I've got as not Zach Gallon. I don't even have Logan Allen in here. That's what I'm finding out. So I'll have to get on that for you. Quantrill interest is a bit greater in the early drafts right now, for what it's worth. Uh, pick 366 in January. Logan Allen buried, but. People haven't had a lot of time to react to this trade. Again, we're talking about a handful of drafts that have happened since the start of the new year. Uh, with Lindor and Carrasco, I mean, Lindor is already an early round guy. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to change about his value. For you, 
progressive field to city field, is there a slight park downgrade overall for Lindor that's probably offset by being in a very loaded NL lineup? Yeah, I didn't realize this, and it still hits me kind of wrong. Uh, but I don't know, I don't know how to use this information. So apparently, Cleveland has a hitter's park. It's just cold, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still cold. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how to use this this knowledge. I mean, I guess over the course of the season, uh, it gets warmer there. And so then they can hit for more power eventually because it's more of a hitter's park. But if it's still cold, it's still cold. They're still going to have these uh, bad beginning months for hitters. I don't know. Um, I I think that uh, Lindor might not be affected much. I don't. I don't necessarily think that he's a true talent. You know, thirty-eight homer hitting guy anymore. Uh, but I do think that he can hit thirty homers in New York. Um, and I. I do find it interesting that Carlos Carrasco is now going to go to a more of a pitcher's park. Mm-hmm. I think he gets the the bigger bump of the two players going to the Mets. I mean, again, in part because of where Lindor already is, it's hard to make an impact and move up a lot when you're a top 15, top 20 sort of player overall. But even if we're operating under the assumption that the NL has the DH, City Field is a more pitcher-friendly environment than Progressive Field, and that gives you a better floor for Carrasco. Yeah. Um, One thing that's interesting about um, this trade from a real-life perspective is, you know, I was looking at um, injury projections and, um, you know, I, I worked with Jeff Zimmerman on, on putting together sort of DL percentage projections for, for pitchers. And like somebody like Davey Garcia actually has a, uh, has the least, is least likely to hit the DL by our, our numbers. He's young, doesn't have a history of arm troubles. Um, there's certain stuff that goes in about DL days and then zone percentage, uh, a little bit of proxy for command. Uh, goes into this. So put it all together and Davey Garcia does pretty well. Um, and on the other hand, at the very top, um, of the likelihoods, um, you've got, uh, Carlos Carrasco very close to the top. Let me see where I, he landed. Um, and it's interesting because I was looking at the, the, the likelihood of rotations injury risk, right? And the Indians came in as the least likely to get injured next year. And so I was like, oh, they, they develop pitchers. They're such a good job. And then I realized, no, they trade away all their pitchers before they get hurt. Yep. Cos Carrasco, here's the most likely pitchers to get hurt next year. Number one is Garrett Richards. <laughs> Poor guy. That seems about right. Number two is Rich Hill. Yep. Okay. Number three is Johnny Cueto. Four is Homer Bailey. Five is Nathan Diavaldi. Six is Michael Fulmer. Seven is Brett Anderson. It's pretty good so far. Eight is Matt Shoemaker. And nine is Carlos Carrasco. Ten is Charlie Morton. Uh, anyway, uh, Carlos Carrasco is high on that list. Michael Clevenger obviously is injured for the year, so that's a 100% DL chance. Um, they seem to get the best years from their pitchers and, and move them. Uh, so the Carlos Carrasco part was always going to happen, I guess. And that's, I, for what it's worth, probably what the Rays are also trying to do with Snell. Just get out ahead of those injuries, trade them before they get injured, and they don't have as much trade value. Um, but this is going to be something that's going to be in part of my um, 
my my pitcher rankings because I think on the extremes it's ma- it, ma- it means something. You know, you can be excited to uh, pick up Lance McCullers Jr. on a discount because his stuff number is great and his command number is league average, and you think there's going to be a lot coming out of him, but he also um, is just in the top ten for injury risk, and you can't really argue with that. And you Darvish is right behind him, so. I wanted to include this as part of it, and it also became part of uh, this discussion because now the Indians have the best injury risk uh, in their rotation in baseball, and the Mets have the worst. Yes, both teams leaning into uh, what they've got so far. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) if you're going to have injury risk, you're going to have great skills, well, don't hide from more available skills with injury risk. You've already... You've already gone this far, and in Cleveland, yeah, I mean, it, there is clearly a, a recent pattern there based on some of the things that have happened to guys after leaving. I, mean, I thought we'd at least see a partial season from Corey Kluber last year in Texas, and we weren't even lucky enough to uh, to get that. So that's the the full breakdown of the fallout from the trade from a fantasy perspective. The last question I had for you for today is related to a new leaderboard over at Baseball Savant. It's called the Spin Direction Leaderboard. I'm going to ask you a simple question that's probably on the minds of a lot of people out there listening as they've either just heard about the tool five seconds ago or heard about it last week when uh, Darren from Baseball Savant was tweeting about it. How should we utilize this particular tool over at Baseball Savant? Yeah, it's tough. There's two concepts that are... It's a really cool board, um, and there's two concepts that are relevant that are now easier to study. And the two concepts, one is called seam shifted wake and another is called spin mirroring. The first seam shifted wake, I do not think actually has a lot of actionable content for uh, fantasy. The reason is, um, so we used to have a, a spin direction that was inferred. And so you looked at the movement and you said, what kind of spin direction would create this movement? And boom, that's your spin direction. But with Hawkeye now, we can observe. So up on this Baseball Savant tool, they have the spin base, the sort of inferred uh, axis, and then they have the observed axis. And you can uh, search from the deviation between the two, which is called deviation, and you'll find that Corbin Burns, Nadia Valdi, Alex Cobb, Merrill Kelly, um, in one direction, have the the highest uh, deviation. And if you uh, click on it again, you'll get in the other direction. Um, and you'll find guys um, that uh, have a large de- deviation in the other direction. And the, 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 that's Lucas Sims, uh, Luis Perdomo. Uh, there's a certain amount of curveballs that, that, that take advantage of this. And from a player development standpoint, this is really interesting because what it means is that um, there's an additional force on the ball that creates movement that has nothing to do uh, that, that has more to do with grip. This is this is the value of grips because if you put the grip in a certain direction um, and it has the same spin as another ball with a different grip, you can get more movement. So these pitchers, like Kyle Hendricks, really, he has uh, two fastballs that have the same um, observed spin direction but different outcomes. His four-seam and his two-seam have very different outcomes because of the grip. So from player development, you can see why that's so exciting, right? You can be like, oh, okay, uh, you have this spin direction, this observed spin direction, um, and we've seen that these other players get more movement out of their ball, out of their sinker than you do. 
Can you look at their grips and see if one of those grips works for you? Oh, boom. You just got a bunch more movement on your sinker. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's very exciting from a player development standpoint. From, from a fantasy standpoint, we often, like a lot of these stuff metrics we do and what we're looking at from the outside looks at movement. So we don't care as much about the spin direction because we just look at the resulting movement. If the resulting movement is good, then we give it a thumbs up. You know what I mean? We're not as concerned with how they got that movement. That's what Seam Shifted Wake will do is we'll, we'll teach some some pitchers to change their grip and get more movement. So that's that's cool for baseball, not so great for fantasy baseball. The other concept, spin mirroring, um, is just that you know I've shown in the past and other people have shown that if your breaking ball and your fastball have um, exactly opposite spin directions that, that that can be good for outcomes. And that's not necessarily now captured in any stuff metrics um, because we had this incorrect, basically, spin in the past. Now we can put it into our stuff metrics. We can put it into our analysis and look at, um, you know, pitchers and, and see, like, which ones have really good spin mirroring. Um, you know, I think... Uh, Someone that comes to mind um, is Shane Bieber. His fastball and his curveball have exactly different uh, spins. And that makes it really hard for the, pit, the, the batter to pick up uh, which way the ball is spinning. And they just, they just look the same. The, the forcing of the curve start to look the same. And that can be part of our fantasy analysis. I will try to look into it uh, and point out the best spin mirrors and, uh, and see if we can find some sleepers based on that. So uh, those are the two concepts that came to mind when I saw it. I'm, it's really cool um, uh, to to think about basically the the difference between what this ball should move like and the way the ball does move. That's that's what deviation the deviation column is. Yeah, you might find you're just not getting as much movement as you should. And like you said, a grip adjustment might be the key to unlocking it. So uh, showing us some potential or showing uh, player development people potential, which they've I mean. They've had this all along. This is just sort of new to us facing uh, the public over at Baseball Savant. So enjoy if you're clicking around over there. And I mean, look, there's so many ways to get lost in that website. This is just one of about a hundred ways to do it now. Uh, But hopefully Eno's explanation helps you understand what you could or probably couldn't do by looking at that particular new tool. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. It goes a long way to support the show. Uh, if you're looking for a subscription to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash rates in barrels will get you the best deal we have going right now. $3.99 a month, I believe, is the price if you're a new subscriber right now. So it's about 30% off the regular price of a one-year subscription. On Twitter, he is at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. You can email us, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. We'll start cleaning out the email inbox very soon. We are back with you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. 